that happen in the world. And the rabbi said, it is told to us in the Talmud, in one of our holy books, it is told to us that a single event can change so much. And indeed it is true. Years and years ago, longer than time will allow us to really remember, there was another town, and in that town was, there were two men. And they shared a similar name. There was, there was Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. And in this town also there was a merchant um, who was getting ready to be wed. <laughs> And he was dear, dear friends with Kamsa. But Bar Kamsa, he thought of Bar Kamsa as his enemy. As the day for the wedding approached, the merchant sat down and carefully, in his very own hand, wrote out in beautiful scrolls, lovely shaped letters, and lots of decorations around the sides. He wrote out invitations to his wedding and handed them to his servant and asked him to go and deliver them. The servant made a dread mistake and took Kamsa's invitation and handed it to Bar Kamsa. Now, Bar Kamsa, Bar Kamsa saw this and thought to himself, my enemy's heart has softened and I have been invited to his wedding. He is ready to make peace with me. And so he went out and he bought an exquisite gift to carry along to the to the wedding feast. And on the day, he dressed himself in his finest clothes and he went there. And he arrived and he sat at a table ready for the feast. And the merchant saw him and was filled with rage and anger. What is my enemy doing here at my wedding feast? And he went over and said to him, you must leave. Man said, but I received an invitation from you. I, I would love to stay and celebrate your joy. But the merchant would have none of it. He demanded that he leave. Bar Kamsa said, I would, I would so much like to make peace with you. I would so much like this to, to, to be a joyous day for us all. May I pay for half the cost of your feast. I want to make peace. But Bar Kamsa, but the merchant, not Bar Kamsa, he was trying to make peace. The merchant just simply could not open his heart. He remained hardened and angry and again told the man he had to leave. The man said, I'll, I'll pay for the whole of your feast. Please let us make peace. But the merchant's heart never opened and he lifted the man up and carried him out and threw him into the street. And the rabbi said to the yeshiva students, it is said that this one act of anger, this one act of closed hearts, brought down the walls of the temple in Jerusalem, brought down the walls of our holiest place. It is said that one small act wrecked such damage throughout the world. And indeed, it's true, the small things that we do have an impact. And I say to you that inasmuch as that act of anger may have brought down the walls of the temple, each act of love, each moment of kindness, each time an enemy's heart gets open, each time our hearts get open. Rebuild the walls. Bring back the holes. Make the world more light and full and joyful. <coughs> so let us pay attention to those small, small acts. And let us build the world with luck in every moment. <coughs> and that's the story of Kamsa and Bar Kamsa. And before I sit down, I just want to say one more thing, um, and that is um, to first quote, give you a quote from uh, a Pueblo Indian 
storyteller called Leslie Monroe Silco. And um, what she says in, in the Pueblo Indian tradition, that they believe that stories aren't held by the storyteller. The storyteller draws the stories out of the people to whom she tells the story. And I have to say, this week I have really felt that I have been telling stories with, not to, all of you. And I want to thank you for your attention and for helping me through the process. You don't perhaps haven't known that you've done that, but you have all week. And um, I deeply appreciate it. And I'm just delighted that I could share the space and the time of stories with you. So thanks very much for your attention this week. Yes, I want to thank you, Linda. There's nothing better than hearing somebody tell a story that you've suggested. Just what miracles you work with. <laughs> Many happy endings have been found where once there was tragedy. Thank you very much. <laughs> so we sing now. I let your little light shine, shine, shine. Let your little light shine, oh my Lord. And maybe someone's down in the valley trying to get home, trying to get home. So let your little light shine, shine, shine. Let your little light shine, oh my Lord. And maybe someone's down in the valley.
one. I went to a lecture once. And it was given by a psychiatrist, and it was about how best to deal with difficult teenagers. <laughs> Good practice for subsequent work with Unitarians. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he started his talk by stating boldly um, that teenagers, teenagers, of course, well, they're all on drugs, you know. <laughs> He had our attention, as he then went on to explain that the drugs were homemade and legal, and that the drugs affecting most teenagers' behaviour are the hormones and other bodily chemicals that are flooding their bodies in unexpected amounts at unexpected times, making them feel things very strongly and behave at times oddly. It's not just teenagers. <laughs> All of us humans are susceptible to certain influences. I, I don't know if this one will work straight after breakfast, but you could try it. Uh, so th your task is just to imagine sucking a lemon. Yeah. <laughs> and if we would just able now have the time and the inclination to measure saliva flow <laughs> there, there would have been physiological changes in us and uh, this, this exercise that um, we're going to try now is, is another one of these I'm going to ask you to, to think of three things that you feel gratitude for I tell you what, just think, we are going to do this, call them out presently, but just think in silence for a while, three things that you're grateful for. even this early in the morning there are a significant number of people's faces have changed just doing this a slight smile can sometimes arise I wonder if a few people would be prepared to just put their what they're grateful for into a short sentence and then after somebody said that sentence let's just hold that silence for 10 seconds or so and appreciate what they've just told us go on Cassandra I'm grateful for my cat and my mother my spirituality. I'm grateful I can draw breath. I'm no longer afraid to feel and for forgiveness. beautiful to hear people's gratitudes and in there there are the seeds of the passion that I think is the zest for our living it's, it, of course passion is one of those things that we have to be discerning about there's um, a story, I think this came from Sam Keane 
um, stories, hymns to the unknown God. Um, but I, I remember reading him telling a story of a Dutchman who ended up as a prisoner of war in the Second World War and was uh, forced, with lots of other prisoners, to watch um, films of Hitler's speeches. And this Dutchman said that it, he had to force himself not to go, Zeke Heil, because of the passion that was roused by a speaker of that, you know, with that kind of level of charisma. Thank goodness we don't have to worry about that today. <laughs> you can keep your arms by your side. <laughs> Gratitude, of course, is, you know, relatively easy enough to feel in the delicious parts of life. It's feeling gratitude for the tough times. Now, that's, that's a far more challenging spiritual path, isn't it? Perhaps acceptance is really the best that any of us can hope to achieve in those times. But on, on, on the moving into the quest imagery again, that heroic journey that we've been on all week, it's time now for the return, for, for carrying the treasure, the boon, back to the community. Like uh, Jack of Jack and the Beanstalk, returning from his thieving expeditions with the hen under his arm that lays the golden eggs, having murdered the giant, cutting down the beanstalk, and returning home to mother, unusually, rather than marrying. But it's only in fairy stories that happy endings can be guaranteed. Real life, as we all well and truly know it, is tough, ongoing, and, as that hymn said, briefer than a kiss. And in our human lives, if we're able to take a slow, long look, we may be able to discern one strong, mythic theme that carries us through life. This was what Joseph Campbell always told his young students to do. Find your myth. Find the story that resonates with you and work with that throughout your life. And that story will carry you through the tough times and guide you onwards and point out your way. That's, Campbell said, what it is to follow your bliss. Campbell had, dis had developed this idea from Jung's teachings. Jung, who in midlife and feeling that he had lost his way, later wrote, I made it the task of tasks to find by what mythology I was living. And he returned to his favourite occupation as a child, of building with sand and sticks, literally making sandcastles for a very long time. And after that long time of simple play, he went on to build a home like a, an actual castle near Zurich, and he went on to really fully explore and achieve his life's work. Such a quest is the task of a lifetime, and yet we're also all engaging, I think, with heroic journeys each and every day as we get up, get out of bed, deal with the challenge of everyday life. Each day there is truth to be searched for, tests and trials to be faced, hidden treasures to be found and recognised, and wisdom wisdom to bring back into our own consciousness and way of living. Wisdom, perhaps, to share with others in our world. And the truth we seek for and the wisdom we bring back to ourselves is ultimately that knowledge of our true selves. So each day there's life to be experienced fully, and so much of that is within our inner world. There's the physical world of our bodily selves. The world of sensation. There's the world of our endless, churning thought processes that can be at times so creative and at times so tediously repetitive, if yours are anything like mine. That's the world of consciousness. There's the world of our emotions that can give us so much information, too much information at times, about our relationship with ourselves and with one another and this world that we inhabit. These are our tools for gaining that knowledge of self. 
And this, I believe, is what it is to engage on the spiritual quest that so clearly has called to us that we would spend a week together in its exploration. And this, I think, is what it is to be religious, to be in love, to be in love. And that is perhaps the best happy ending we can hope for in the world of matter, where nothing stays the same. Philosopher and theologian John Caputo makes much of this in his recent works. And if you're into this sort of convoluted kind of thinking with passion, I recommend his work to you. Religion, he says, is for lovers, for men and women of passion, for real people who believe in something, who love something with a love that surpasses understanding. And what does love mean? He answers in a way that echoes Augustine, if love is the measure, the only measure of love is love without measure. The mark of really loving someone or something is unconditionality and excess. Engagement and commitment, fire and passion. For Caputo and for Jacques Derrida, the French philosopher whose work he's engaged with for so many years, and if Caputo's difficult to understand Derrida, it's just off the scale for a brain like mine. But for Derrida, God is an impossibility, and the impossible is possible. God is love, particularly in Caputo's writings, but both God and love are for him verbs rather than nouns. God and love are active actions, events even. They are not passive, static labels. And I'm rather wishing that I'd told Caroline this was the point I was going to stop now and say, hello, Caroline, this is your bit. It will be a shocking moment. You're in the company of French philosophers. <laughs> Luckily, I've got my notes to refer to. <laughs> and Caroline is a member of Kensington Unitarians. And I'm great. Okay. Um, a few minutes about love along the journey, reminding myself first but this is not the Jeremy Kyle show. A different approach might be needed. Um, as as um, several of you know, many years ago, I worked for some years um, in the Metropolitan Police, where I um, was on the beat at the Elephant and Castle area. <clears throat> and I was never really a ball of fire when it came to arresting people and subjecting them to the full force of the law. I, I always had a trusting sort of nature. And um, everyone always seemed to have a very reasonable um, explanation. For anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, there was one day I was um, I was walking walking I was going to say walking the streets. I was walking the streets, and um, and I saw a car that seemed to be stuck together in a disturbingly fundamental way with sellotape. So I stopped to look at this car, and I couldn't help noticing that in addition to being held together with sellotape. Somebody had obviously taken the tax disc out and tip-hexed over the registration number and written a different registration number on it in the felt pen. <clears throat> and even, even to me, that, that didn't look quite right. <laughs> so um, I spoke to the owners of the car, who were a very down-at-heel-looking middle-aged couple, and I said, where did you get this tax disc? And the man said, well, it was on the car when I bought it. So I said, well, when did you buy the car? And he said... Ooh, five or six years ago it must have been. Now, he obviously wasn't a criminal mastermind, but I think eventually I convinced him that there had not been a 1983 tax disc on the car when he bought it in 1978. Now, for reasons which I can't remember, I went back to their flat, which was a very um, shabby little council flat um, in really the nastiest estate in Britain. And um, it was full of very unpleasant-looking people, rough dirty, apparently drinking and smoking themselves to death while they watched daytime television. And I started talking to this couple, and it turned out that um, until recently there'd been a local drop-in centre for substance abusers, which at that time in that place um, were really middle-aged alcoholic men. And this woman had been working there as a domestic. And the, uh, for cost-cutting reasons, this centre had been closed. 
and very rashly, foolishly really, but realising that these men had absolutely nowhere to go except the streets, she'd say, well, come and sit in my flat. You know, you're welcome, come and watch television and keep warm. And she assured me that they were no trouble. Um, it was quite a mad thing to do. Um, as far as I could see, at sort of hourly intervals, she'd emerge from the kitchen with a, a tray, alternately, of value beans on cheap toast or value soup with cheap bread. And I thought then, and still think today, what very odd and unexpected forms love can take. And um, if I was one of these uh, evangelical young teenagers with their what-would-Jesus-do wristbands, I'd say, well, he'd be in there with the value beans, I reckon. Um, I actually had, I had a bit of a fantasy that I could get them an OBE. <laughs> this was ridiculous. Um, but I thought, well, you know, these OBEs, they all go to people like civil servants. They're just doing the job they're salaried to do. Why should they get all the honours? Um, I could never quite think how to phrase the letter. You know, I arrested a couple for fraud. And when, I got, <laughs> when I got back to their flat, it was full of alcoholics drinking white lightning. Um, I wasn't really sure that anyone would go for it. But... Um, Anyway, one of my, one of my least favourite expressions, and I think perhaps you have to um, mix with quite socially conservative people like police officers to come across this much, is a few couples, as in, we're having a barbecue on Saturday and we thought we'd just invite a few couples over. And um, it's what you could call the Noah's Ark view of the human race. <laughs> I have actually seen a toy Noah's Ark where the animals were physically linked together, giraffe joined to giraffe, snail joined to snail to make absolutely sure there can't be any unsavoury mingling of the species. <laughs> um, or if I could impose two separate metaphors on the same thing, it's the circling the wagons view of human, the human life, where you put people like us in the circle, and then you all point your weapons outside to keep everyone else out. Um, I'm, I'm one of the few parents I know, probably one of the few parents in the world, and I can't take any credit or blame for this because I did it purely by accident, who's taken my children out of the kind of thriving popular school with a long waiting list and sent them to a school instead that was completely the opposite. And uh, when I say I did it by accident, um, what happened, I'd uh, become very disillusioned with the school they were at, as had every parent. It was a disaster, really. <clears throat> and I went up to the town hall and I said, you know, this is the age of my children. Could they recommend another school that I would, might have spaces? And they said, now here's the expression, would I consider such and such a school because we're trying to build it up? Now, I, I was thrilled. Who would not want their children to go to a school that the council is trying to build up? And um, bearing in mind, the school they were at was so overcrowded that small group teaching took place in the head teacher's minibus. Um, I went to this school, and it was just wide open spaces. It's like the wind blowing across the Arctic tundra. There were whole spacious classrooms just standing empty. And I thought, well, a school where my children can breathe, there's space, light air. Um, but there was, there was a slight odd thing. A lot of the children seemed to be bussed in. Now, in London, um, children are not bussed into um, state schools. The universal way of getting your children to school, even if your house shares a fence with the school, is that you shove the children into the car, back out of the drive, and then park on the zigzag lines. <laughs> but, um, in this borough, there's a big travellers' camp, and there's a lot of refugees. And oddly enough, these popular oversubscribed schools never had spaces for any of these, um, so they had, to be sent, they had to be sent by bus to a school that had plenty of space. Um, by the time I realised that this school was a bit more miscellaneous than I was used to, the children were there. Now, I'm probably just as snobbish and horrible as any other mother, and I did sweat a bit. I'm, you know, I'm being honest here. That I thought... Um, my my um, friends, seemed, their children seem to be going to Mallory Towers. You know, they turn up in their beautiful wool blazers with the maroon piping round and the little velour hats. And, um, <laughs> and my, my, you know, my, my children, they immediately developed... Those of you who know one or both of them might find it hard to believe, but I do have video evidence to prove it. The worst accent in the world, which is the kind of robotic estuary English of a child who would die rather than sound posh. And uh, they developed a taste for things like um, silver polyester microskirts from Tammy Girl, where my friend's daughter seemed to be walking advertisements for Minnie Bowden. It was really, you know, I, I used to sweat a bit and think, will my children even be allowed to talk to these, these other children when they get older? But there was a bit of me that gritted my teeth, and I thought, um, they go to school to be educated, and they are being educated. They're learning to live alongside every possible 
kind of you know people and um, and I thought they'll thank me for this one day, which obviously they never have. I mean, you know. <laughs> Um, I can remember Libby, Libby Purvis saying um, something that is not right for children to grow up in what she called a mother care world. And she said, the um, disreputable single uncle sleeping it off on the sofa is an essential part of a child's development. So I'm, I'm happy to say Jim and I, between us, have managed to provide our children with quite a number of disreputable single uncles. <laughs> and um, I, I think that you know, they've, they've learned to appreciate these um, odd people that have uh, given them love over the years. Um, <clears throat> there was a journalist whose name I've forgotten, even though I googled it just before I came into the room. I know. Um, anyway, early 20th century journalist who famously said, friends are God's apology for relations. And when I first, <laughs> when I first saw that, I was rather taken by it. It seemed sort of elegantly cynical in a way that quite appealed to me. And then I kind of went off it. I got rather defensive of relations. And I thought, you know, we were all toilet trained before we even had friends. And somebody did it. Um, and, um, <laughs> obviously, everybody's experience of their relations is different. And I couldn't um, begin to suppose I speak for everybody. But for most of us, our earliest lessons in love however flawed and aggravating these people are, did come from our relations. Um, I mean, <clears throat> my predominant memory of my own parents is probably that they were permanently completely knackered. They had four children, they both had demanding jobs, and uh, it's probably true to say that nature didn't um, intend either of them for a, a career in stand-up comedy, but uh, <laughs> they, the sort of characteristic expression on their face that I would remember is one of exhausted exasperation at what have wonderful children done now. But even so, as Philip Larkin put it, they tuck you up, your mum and dad. (laughs) (laughs) Now I completely forgot what I was going to say next. Um, Just... um, to look after someone who's, who's dependent on you, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, you have no breaks for being ill, no breaks for um, being exhausted, for being fed up with the whole thing, is a very, very hard job. Um, it's probably, for most of us, the hardest job we ever do. And, um, yeah, I, I think um, relations... None of us chose our relations, and I'm aware that there's probably people in the room who wouldn't have chosen their relations. But um, even so, for most of us, uh, they've, they've undertaken a hard job, and you know they're responsible for a lot of the people we are today. Um, and I, I was going to say, if I had one wish for my children, but obviously I have hundreds of wishes for my children. I wish they could have good health and happiness and freedom from worry and good hair and self-tidying bedrooms. <laughs> Another wish I would wish for the children is that they would grow up to understand that uh, love comes in just unexpected um, shapes and sizes. And it's not always even easy to recognise. It doesn't always come from people who are easy to like. It comes unexpectedly certainly doesn't come from people like us. And if you try and circle the wagons and put people like us inside and everybody else outside, you'll be shutting most of it out. Now, somebody once said, you don't know how your children have turned out and how good you are as a parent, unless you have grandchildren. Um, So, you know, who knows whether whether Jim and I have succeeded, maybe too soon to say. Um, But... I think there's a saying that a parent's place is in the wrong. Um, my views on this saying changed when I ceased to be just somebody who had parents and became um, somebody who was a parent. Um, one thing, now this is a bit like, um, it's the modern equivalent of admitting that you send your children down a coal mine or up a chimney and then spend the proceeds on absinthe, which is, um, we very, very quite rarely had a proper family dinner in our house um, and it's kind of received wisdom that if you don't have the sort of family, proper family dinner where you all sit down and you 
um, eat together the dinner with wheat you've threshed yourself from your own corn and apple juice you've trampled yourself from your own apples, that your children will be dead in the gutter before they're 20. And um, now that my children are, have both reached that age, I'm quite indignant about this. It's so prescriptive, this idea that for, this, is, this is the hour of day when you give your children love and attention. And if they don't get it in that way at that time, then there's no hope for them. And, um, and I would say there, is, there are other ways besides having the family dinner and putting a bucket of swill in the corner and saying, get down there. And, <laughs> um, and you know, our children, we gave them um, love and attention. My, when I was a child, we did have proper family dinner every day around the table. And my recollection is I didn't really like it very much a lot of the time. Uh, children are quite, often quite private people. And there's something about that thing sitting around the table with your parents when they sort of turn to you and say, what have you been doing today? And it makes you feel like that person at the, at the beginning of Mastermind where they show, shine the spotlight on the chair and the doomy music plays. You just feel really exposed. And I think often for children, um, they're often a bit sort of shy and um, I'd say they can even be a bit secretive. And if, you, if there's opportunities of time for time and attention, then they will talk when, when they want to talk. Um, while you're waiting for the AA by the roadside or looking at the lovely wriggly worm in the garden, that kind of thing. Um, so I'm kind of coming out as a non-family dinner person. <laughs> a lot of microwave dinners on trays in our house, um, and, and still our children are not dead in a gutter. So um, anyway, we've had um, a lot of lovely readings over, over the week from great um, poets and philosophers and thinkers. So I thought I would end with four lines from John Hegley, and it's called um, A Love Poem by My Dog. I saw you in the park. I wanted to be your friend. So I tunnelled my snout into the non-barking end. <laughs> that thing of sitting silently for a minute and absorbing that but if we end up <laughs> we stay in the non-barking end <laughs> I hate to think what will become of us uh, let's take a breath about love for you to think over. Love and commitment. What is it that you find yourself committed to in your life? image of, of love in the shape of value beans on value toast does love show up in unexpected shapes and sizes in your life sometimes
What might it mean to love the unlovable? Find somebody to speak with now and to share some responses to those questions or to anything else that, that has bubbled up this morning. We just go till six or seven minutes till five, two on that clock. Responsibility, that ability to respond. For all our talk of inner exploration this week, ultimately I think the path of the spiritual explorer leads outwards into the world once more, leads us into engagement with the other. Shakespeare's Love is Not Love, the alteration finds. For me, for me, love is constant only in its movement, in its alteration, its, its responsiveness, and its ability to, to reflect the inner world back out into outer reality and to engage in the dance that is life. So it matters perhaps less than what we love and what we do, so long as it harms neither us or another, but that we engage in love, in the event, in the beingness of life. At the beginning of the week I was talking about if you're never sure where you're meant to be, look down at your feet. And that can be comforting. But, but doubt, well, doubt lives on for me and I suspect for all of you. That lovely quote of Voltaire's, that doubt may be an uncomfortable position, but certainty is a ridiculous one. <laughs> Caputo, who I talked about earlier on, he speaks of our current thinking as a lust for certainty. That's... That, bubbling up almost as um, a counterbalance to our increasing knowledge that, that we're tiny, living in a vast universe, and it's becoming increasingly unknowable to us, for all certain scientists might, might tell us otherwise. And I don't know about you, but doubt is, I think, something that we Unitarians do well. <laughs> It's possibly an area of the market we might like to corner. <laughs> we live in interesting times, as another of those irritating Chinese sayings <laughs> tells us. We've had the great sweep of secularization in, in the Western world, much, much written about by sociologists. And then lo and behold, we get a whole other wave of resacralization coming along that we are so in the midst of that it's very difficult to pick out the key threads. So I'm just taking the privilege of being standing up here to take one thread, and that is, is, uh, comes for me from Jack and the Beanstalk, of all people. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't like the story of Jack and the Beanstalk at all, particularly. I don't know if the 
giant deserved to be murdered. I think it was you know, Jack's behaviour with the wife of the giant was frankly suspect. <laughs> <laughs> that talking harp did not want to leave. And Jack goes back to his mother. And so I'm just going to randomly assert that the, the, the meaning behind that interesting return is the return to Mother Earth and that we would do well to explore that further, that the, the area of ecology and caring for planet Earth is shouting out to us and that it's another area that we can return to and delve deeply into. There is, a, I, th I think again this is from um, Jack Keane, the, there is a primal sorrow about life and ignoring that is to wear great blinkers. But a return to Mother Earth, painful and uncertain though our individual human lives are, can be a deeply comforting place for us to rest. And in that spirit, I'm going to ask us to sing now. The, I don't know about myths that we live with, but do you ever have that feeling that there is a hymn that particularly speaks to you? And the first one in this book, Blue Boat Home, expresses something of our life's journey for, for me. It, it's, the accompaniment to this has lots of notes in it, and it has long spaces. So we're going to hear the tune first of all, and it's going to play to us. So it's got a, a, a long kind of entry bit, which sounds just like the waves, and then one then we'll come in. Oh yes, it's slow. The last the last line of each verse. You hold it out longer than you would in the hymn normally. Let's see how we do. And let's do sit down.
this, this Unitarian faith of ours has seen me through 20 or so of the toughest years of my life. And I'm still standing. And I put that down to the companions that have helped me along the way. For me, a, a cruise would be some kind of hell as a holiday choice. But if I did have to go on a cruise, well, I'd choose you lot to come with me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.